Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jayanelli, and you can't see me on Ravnica because I've blended in with Krenko's gang. I'm Lorelai Weissel, and you can't see me on Ravnica because I ain't even here. I'm off chilling on Chandelar. You can't see me because I have given up my individual nature and joined the Selesnia Conclave. Brian, what's your name? <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. He's given up his individual identity. He doesn't have a name anymore. He's just one of the Conclave. I buy it. We're shipping this. <laughs> and I'm Ashley Barrow, and you can't see me on Ravnica because I'm too short. Well, welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Vorthos cast. Last week, we thought we would have enough time to cover all the things we wanted to talk about with the novel. To clarify, Jay thought, I <laughs> I thought there was no way we were going to get through it all, and I was right. We're going to talk today more about War of the Spark Ravnica, but first we have a couple pieces of news. The first thing is a big project from Lorelei is now out. Oh, I mean, I've talked about this before, but okay, if you want to put it in the news section, we can talk about how I wrote the Planeswalker dialogue for War of the Spark for Magic the Gathering Arena. So I wrote 18 characters, all, all the Planeswalkers who are getting their cards for the first time in, in Arena, plus Gideon, Liliana, and Nicol Bolas, the three Mythic Rares. So if you are playing Arena and you hear those characters talk, I wrote those lines, so I hope you like them. And I've seen a lot of people like them so far, so that that's pretty good. Um, uh, Davriel is the best, and Cure is the second best, and Ashiok is the third best. The lines, I think, now have been ripped by someone on Reddit, so they're not really well sorted, but they probably will be soon, maybe by the time you're listening to this on Monday. So check it out. You can listen to them without having to grind for a planeswalker and then activating that planeswalker over and over just to get to the correct one i cannot officially condone such activity but i'm also not your mom <laughs> so the other bit of news is last week we got the first of the war of the spark web fiction so these stories are chapters from the novel taken with new content added and rewritten to be a point of view from the character Rat, who is very, very popular from the novel. Um, and so we get a little bit more, for instance, in this one, we, we get to meet Hikara while she's still alive at the beginning. But we are going to cover all of the web fiction at once, uh, once it's all finished in about six weeks, because we have a lot of other stuff to cover in the next couple weeks. So you can catch us here talking about it in June. Uh, if you are wondering whether you should read the web fiction first or the novel first, they it's the same story, essentially. They kind of take place parallel. So... This one took place like the first half of Act 1, and it'll probably be half an act for the rest of them. I don't remember exactly how they track to the story in the novel, but if you don't want to be spoiled from the novel, go ahead and read the first half of Act 1 before you uh, read the web fiction for that. So let's move on to Magic Story War of the Spark Ravnica by Greg Weissman. 
Last time we talked a lot about characters and characterizations, but we stopped before we got to two of the more popular characters in Magic Story and one of the most popular fanships, Chandra Nalar and Nissa Ravain. Okay. Jay, it's not a fanship if it's canon. Then it's just canon. And it's canon because Chandra and Nissa tell each other that they love each other. It's gay. It's great. And I don't think we really need to say anything else. I think that just sums it up, right? <laughs> oh, I was going to say they confirmed my OTP too. Um, and then Gideon died. So thanks. Thanks, guys. It's true. Chandra did get to talk about how she once had a crush on Gideon, but then she started only loving him like a brother because um, they'd been through a lot, which seems okay because Gideon back in Ether Revolt was like, Hmm, I wish I could just tell Chandra I loved her, but then he couldn't do it because he's not good with emotions because he is a white-aligned character. And uh, so I guess it's okay that he died because she wasn't going to love him back that way anyway. But uh, I generally liked how Greg wrote Chandra. Uh, She wasn't, of all the POV characters, she wasn't in it a whole lot. Um, She was mostly thinking about Nyssa, and that's... Obviously, very sweet, because Nyssa came back. My assumption is specifically to help Chandra. Nyssa gets to awaken Vitu Ghazi and knock down the Bola statue, and then she's just kind of around, doing her thing, helping out. Rejoins the Gatewatch, by the way. And is promptly excoriated by the Selesnia for getting Vitu Ghazi destroyed. They'll be okay with it, right? There's nothing important in Vitugazi, right? <laughs> so whether or not Matt Selesnia is even still like in Vitugazi after the first Ravnica novel isn't entirely clear. So we don't actually see what happens to Matt Selesnia. And now Matt Selesnia is more like the world soul rather than the initial impression we got of it or them was... Uh, she was a few, a bunch of dryads that fused into this giant elemental that was in the tree. The other thing about Nyssa is we learn she had gone back to Zendikar and Jace upon leaving the crew on, on the Weatherlight. He headed to uh, Zendikar to try and track her down. And uh, it took a little while, took a couple weeks, and that's why he ends up, well, that's why he ends up being late to Ravnica. Uh, And when he realized he couldn't convince her, he went back to to rendezvous with the others. But it appears he had more of an influence than he thought, combined with the uh, planar beacon. You know what, though? The influence probably wasn't anything he said. The influence was probably Nyssa going like, Geez, I wish Chandra had come to try and recruit me instead. And then she realized, oh, snap, I could just go see her. I know where she is. Ha ha. Yeah, I feel like other than Chandra just being well-written, they didn't really do anything. Then we have uh, a whole bunch of minor characters. So a lot of characters in the book are just kind of cameos with their moment of cool. But there are a number of minor characters who have a slightly bigger role. Some of them pretty surprising, like Angrath, which... I kind of loved because he was so annoyed to be trapped by the uh, planer, <laughs> the the um, immortal sun again. It's it's adorable. 
he starts berating all the other planeswalkers for walking into the trap and Huatli's in like the back of the room and is like, you're stuck here too, idiot. <laughs> the shade thrown by Huatli was great. <laughs> and then he and Huatli uh, team up a little bit in the story as well. I don't know that team up is the right word. More like she went along to make sure he didn't do anything sketchy. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But uh, it was still pretty funny. Angrath is pretty great and he gets a pretty poignant moment at the end where he basically says, is it to, to Chandra that um, don't feel sorry for the dead? You know, they're he, he puts it less nicely. But what he's saying is don't feel sorry for the dead. Their suffering is over. Uh, feel sorry for the living who have to keep going with what had happened. Oh, yeah, it might have been to Teo. Uh, it was one to one of the younger characters. Um, but it was, it was interesting to see Angrath give his advice in his way. And what I thought was interesting is Angrath was not one of the planeswalkers who left. He had the opportunity to leave and decided to stay and help. And part of that might've been, you know, some of the, the, the black line planeswalkers who stayed part of that might just be because they know if Nicol Bolas won that day. He would come for them eventually, and so they, they, they stayed for that reason. But a lot of them kind of disappeared when the uh, the planar uh, that the immortal sun went down, like Obnixilis. Yeah, so let's talk about Obnixilis. He got a pretty huge role in this. Okay, uh, but 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 Ob is awesome. He's so good. He's he's a huge nerd, and he's also like a demon. <laughs> Um, he gets to be part of the mission to d- close the planar bridge, uh, when, when he, Dak and Karn and doesn't somebody else go? Oh, Samut travel through the bridge cause they can survive the bridge cause they have planeswalker sparks cause to protect them from the blind eternities. So they go through the bridge, go to Amonkhet, disable the bridge that is being stored in Tezzeret's chest. And then Samut and Dak and Karn go back to Ravnica and Abba's like, peace out. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about that with the set pieces, but Ab is pretty great. He keeps referring to Dak as a flea. He, I'm pretty sure he deliberately, like he carries uh, Dak and flies through the bridge, uh, through the bridge. And uh, I'm pretty sure he deliberately like keeps his hands hot to like scald Dak as they go through. He's not very nice. No, not at all. <laughs> Ab is not a nice person. I like that he gets to be heroic here without having to be nice. Like, he shows up. He doesn't want Bolas to win any more than anybody else does. Uh, That doesn't mean he's a good person. Uh, He still doesn't like the Gatewatch. He's like, look, I I don't like you people, but I like Bolas less, so I guess I'm helping out. And I, I love those kinds of characters. Can we talk about how Bolus, like, in his own way, likes Obnixilis? Because he's, like, talking about all these boring planeswalkers. And he's like, oh, there's Obnixilis. He's slightly less boring. Because he's awesome. What I like about Ob, and I think it comes through here, is he is, like... He he is a bit of a scenery chewer, which I think is fine. There's there's room for that as long as not every villain is that not that scenery chewer. But he's also like he's a plotter, 
and a strategist, but he's not like attempting to be a mastermind at any point. And at, at, at some point, he just kind of wades in and beats the crap out of things. Uh, so he's not a schemer, but he's a tactician. His, he, he has a martial history. He grew up a warlord. He conquers planes and then leaves. He's not like trying to manipulate and run empires. He just loves fighting. Um, he loves feeling superior through combat. This is why in his appearance in Battle for Zendikar, the uh, beating the crap out of Gideon and, and shoving his face down into three inches of dirty water is like a thing for Ob because it's it's Ob taking this indestructible paladin and just beating the crap out of him physically. Um, that's what Ob lives for. He's such an enjoyable character. He, he is, uh, of all the characters I got to write for Arena, he's the one who most increased in my eyes as I uh, researched and wrote the characters. I liked Ab before. I, I love him now. I He's he's in my top tier of Planeswalkers. I, he's so great. <laughs> uh, let's move on to Soren and Nahiri. We're lumping them a bit in together here, but they are, obviously, if you've seen the cards, they are kind of doing their own thing while the world is burning down around them. We start with seeing uh, Nahiri. Gideon is going up and introducing himself to everybody at the the Planar Summit. The Planeswalker Summit, I mean. You know, Nahiri is just kind of looking around like she's looking for somebody. (laughs) And it's pretty clear she's like, is Soren here? The next time we pick up with them, it's Gideon's point of view. And he's talking about where everyone is and how the battle's going and how... For some reason, on this distant rooftop, Soren and Nahiri are just going at it at each other while, uh, you know, everyone else is fighting this grand battle against the Eternals. And he's like, didn't someone tell me Soren was stuck in a rock or something or stuck in a wall? I I enjoyed that. I think a lot of people had wanted more from that because it turned out to be on a surprising number of cards. There are like four or five cards that emphasize it, plus the mythic editions of their cards. But I think, you know, like trying to get into their whole history in this novel probably would have been a bit much. Like, I'm disappointed that we didn't get any information about how Soren gets out of the wall. Yeah, that's what I'm mad about. But like, at some point, this book had so many things in it and you can only say so many things. Um, So like, the one sentence that described them fighting is literally all it needed because there is no space in this book for them. Um, there's too much other stuff going on. It, it gets to be its one-liner joke. I I laughed so hard when I learned what they were up to in this set because it's so them. But um, <laughs> like I, I, I hope we get to hear the story of Soren getting, getting out of the rock one day because I'm sure it's very funny. And probably very humiliating for him. Yeah. <laughs> I I have my own thoughts about it. And um, they, they involve some infighting in the vampiric aristocracy of Innistrad. And uh, I would love Reno Stromkirk to be part of it. Um, and, and it involves a heist to get his sword back. And it I think it could be fun. <laughs> so I also think it's interesting with these two that 
their fighting stops after Sarkon Vol shows up, kind of. So there's there's some things going on in the background of this novel that uh, the timing is interesting on various things, uh, and I'm you know it's not it's not made explicit, but uh, I'm I'm pretty sure the two of them got a message relayed to them to grow the hell up. uh and that's why they're actually being helpful later on in the novel after this point where they're fighting can we also take a moment to say uh sarkin knows so many people yeah that's that was interesting so he he shows up well let's talk about that when we get to um the the deactivating the the uh bridge no let's talk now we're talking about characters. He knows like everybody. He he knows Obnixilis and Karn. Yeah, that those are weird people to know. It's true, but if he has been working with Ugin, you know, he's Ugin is not his master, but we already know that he ferried uh the device for, with Niv Mizzet's uh spirit in it to the meditation realm. So he's probably been doing stuff for Ugin for for a little while. Um, I don't remember the exact time frame, but it's been a little while since uh, Khans of Tarkir. So I wonder, I wonder if Sarkhan's been in the background of some other stories. Guess we'll find out, but probably not. <laughs> Eventually. Sometimes I think it's better to just leave this up to the imagination, though. Like, do they really need to de like? If he was working for Ugin, I think it explains a whole lot, like why he's on Amonkhet to begin with. Uh, and it's pretty clear from the ending that why he was there was for a, a certain piece of the puzzle to, to bring back to uh, to Amonkhet, uh, to, to Ravnica, I mean. Yeah, you say that, but I'm like the chick from Indiana Jones and in, in the Crystal, Soul, yeah, Crystal Skull saying, I want to know. She she like gets kidnapped by aliens at the end of that movie, Brian. So I, I, I'm aware, yeah, she, but it doesn't end well for her. I I still want to know. So let's move on to Yangu and Mowu, another iconic duo uh, who both get their own individual cards in this set, which was really cool. I really liked seeing Mowu as his own card. They also get to show up in the novel with Yangling, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, Yang, Yang Ling is one of the few uh, characters who doesn't get a card that shows up in the novel, besides like Dak, and I think that's that's really it. I, I don't remember. As far as Planeswalkers go, yeah, I think. But we also get a little bit of explanation of how Yangu is able to Planeswalk with Mowu in kind of a, a, a funny form, where uh, Gideon asks of him about it, and he tells him, oh, well, Mowu's like a stone dog, he's magic. <laughs> and Gideon's like, as if that actually explained anything. But they're so busy fighting, he doesn't have time to question it more. Now, the real question is, is Mowu fluffy, even if he's a stone dog? Is he a good pet? Well, he doesn't necessarily have to be all made of stone. Uh, he could just be able to travel through the multiverse because of the stone that is on his collar. He does have that little Jada amulet. And we see him, he's very much a shape changer because we see him in the puppy form. Like his token is both the puppy form and the big beefcake form. And, you know, it's the same 3-3 Mowu each time. 
So, you know, you have to assume that he's also able to change his shape at will. So, yeah, I can I can definitely see that. Also, I know you've seen Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. King Cesar starts all rocky and stony and then he gets fluffy, so it's possible. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe uh in the past Urza turned people to stone to to planes walk away from Talaria when it exploded. And maybe that's kind of what's happening to Mowu when they planeswalk is he gets turned to stone. Oh my god, Mowu is Urza. <laughs> no. Let's move on to Vorel. Vorel? How do you say his name? Uh, I would pronounce it Vorel. He, he, is, he is not a planeswalker. But uh, he is a... I don't even know if he's a speaker. I think he does have, he does have lines. Uh, no, no, I mean in politically like the political position oh no no he's just like a military leader he, i know i know he leads the whole clade because that's his card from dragon's mace uh but he he's a simic uh shaman i don't remember if his card actually has a class because he, he's a human merfolk uh he, he's ex gruel and joined the simic and uh he has an awful lot of lines does an awful lot of things in this book which is surprising uh, but awesome there is a great moment where we are reminded that he is, used to be Gruul, where he just goes brutally slaughtering through a group of Eternals. He uses a magical staff or club or cudgel or something to, like, invert their bodies with biomancy, which is good practical application of some experimental science. <laughs> I, I, I just really enjoyed his appearance in this novel because obviously I love Simic. So the thing I have to say about the, the Simic in this novel is that um, Varel is out with some super soldiers busting eternal heads, but there's probably things going on at the various Zonots, or at the very least the Zonot in um, the 10th District. We, we don't see it in the novel because the novel doesn't go there, but we see Kiora in a body of water with a giant sea serpent in the cards. We see a submarine <laughs> that I guess has to matter uh, in the water. And, you know, so there's some there's some other things going on elsewhere that we don't necessarily see in this novel. The last cameo I wanted to mention is the Wanderer because she shows up and she does awesome things. She's so cool. Everybody, everybody love her and shower her with affection so that Wati brings her back very often. So her whole power set is that she absorbs kinetic energy and uses it to fuel powerful strikes from her sword. So there's a moment where she's fighting Eternals, but she's starting to slow down and her sword is becoming less effective. And she just turns to Gideon and she says, hit me. And he's like, what? She's like, just hit me. And he just like, decks her right in the face and she like she barely moves and then she smiles and it charges her up with more kinetic energy and she starts slicing through again and then later in the novel um kind of dur during the climactic charge against bolus's citadel uh planeswalking usually leaves planeswalkers pretty tired so they can't planeswalk immediately again but the wanderers spark like supercharges so she can planeswalk immediately after planeswalking, and um, it does so somewhat randomly sometimes, unless she's focusing. There, there's a short window when the Immortal Sun is down, 
and everyone's fighting the Eternals and she's about to be grabbed by an Eternal and she planeswalks away and immediately planeswalks back right behind the Eternal and slices it up, which is just awesome. Like, this is the coolest thing. She's so awesome. I think she's been watching a little <laughs> bit of anime. Yeah, she's a really cool character and uh, hopefully we will see more of her soon. I, I just think, like, Lorelai is in love with her. I'm definitely in love with her because it is... I just love, like, I love, you know, Yojimbo. I love The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Um, a Fistful of Dollars, you know, all the movies that are based but on that you, trope. you don't so have to I say love... Fistful of Dollars because you already said Yojimbo. <laughs> exactly. So I, you know, I really love this trope of, like, the wandering samurai who just kind of stumbles in to a situation and comes out a hero. Yeah, she she has a lot of Clint Eastwood lines in Arena. She was really fun to write. <laughs> I've got to listen to the Wanderers lines because I think that would be awesome. So let's move on to some of the set pieces. Uh, you know, some of the stuff we're going to tackle here, things that Greg created specifically for the novel, uh, because, you know, the, the card set sets out like this framework, but not what everyone's doing during that time. So let's start with the the first big set piece, which is the summit at the Senate House. So in this scene, we start with, you know, Gideon and Jace, and they have a moment where, like, they realize they haven't, they've been so busy, like, sniping at each other and being, like, rivals and no one being sure who's in charge of what. And they're just like, you know what, you're a, you're a good you're a good friend and we haven't admitted it to each other and i thought that was a very nice moment and then it opens up to them presenting to this gathered crowd of planeswalkers uh the things they need to do and you know some of it is they're trying to figure out well what if we do just give ourselves up well do you really think he's going to leave ravnica alone and there are like three people in the audience who are like no he tried to blow up my plane (laughs) or he did blow up my plane so obviously that's not going to work and it does a good job of establishing why the battle has to go this way rather than uh the ravnikans like just turning over all the planeswalkers or something along those lines right it's uh samut and vivian speak up they do and uh i think ajani is there as well i don't think he speaks up yeah it, it it it's tricky there's a bunch of guild members in this crowd also and the the petrified body of Asperia is still in the middle of the room from when Vraska killed her and that's super awkward <laughs> it is a visceral reminder of uh planeswalkers on the plane let's put it like that so there's also some nice little interplay like uh there's like a 10 foot radius of uh, around obnixilis because no one wants to stand next to him (laughs) who the hell would yeah besides me gideon you know i mentioned before gideon kind of glad hands through the crowd introducing himself to everybody and that's where we get a lot of the uh, the introductions and things which from a storytelling perspective it was very smart to bring them all together at this point because like it would just be a pain in the butt to have everyone meet each other as things went on and trying to keep track of who know knew who know who bleh, who knew who 
So being able to bring them all together like this in order to uh, chat was something that I thought was a, a great way. It certainly made my life easier in the second half of this novel. Uh, it was not as hard to keep track of who was supposed to know each other at that point. Again, while throwing awesome shade at, uh, or at Angrath was the best part of that. So there was so much potential there for planeswalker interactions that could have been like that scene could have been half a book as it was so let's move on to Amonkhet and the planar bridge so this is the the team that we talked about earlier with obnixilis dak samut and uh karn and meeting sarkin which by the way we were reminded uh sarkin also knew the wanderer which which is also weird like he just where did he meet all these people? This is exciting. He's outside. He's like <laughs> making friends with people instead of dragons. I'm proud of him. <laughs> Listen, my favorite part of this scene is where Dak uses his minus ability to take control of Tezzeret's artifact arm and try and punch Tezzeret in the face with his own arm. <laughs> that was really good. Uh, he also has a gift from Sahili. He has like a little hummingbird style thopter that is a bomb that he uses. And that's what ends up uh, disrupting the um, the planar bridge uh, and shutting it down. We also got to learn a lot about what's been happening on Amonkhet. Um, Sumut talks to uh, Hazaret. You might remember her. She's uh, like 50 feet tall, face made of gold. <laughs> Um, uh, kind of a god. Um, Never heard of her. <laughs> um, yeah, like so. They mentioned um, they drove the locust god and the scarab god out into the desert and um, made their way back to Noctamon. And uh, Hazret raised the Hekma again, and they're like they're surviving. With Sarkon's help, yeah. They're they're making it work that's pretty cool so like the the hidden benefit of bolus moving his army off of amonkhet is that it moves it out of nactamon which means they don't have to wander the desert forever they can actually go back home <laughs> what's left of it but like <laughs> it's nice to hear yeah the the scarab god and the locust god are still out there but after that kind of initial push to bring down the Hekma and raise everything, they're kind of, they're, they're much weaker than they were. They don't have all three of them. They mentioned they're weaker because Bolus is no longer on the plane. And then Hazaret hands over her spear, which uh, might have been what Sarkon was there for all along. And Karn has this awesome moment where everyone's like, let's get the four of us to carry it. <laughs> and Karn is like, just step aside, please. Puts his hand on it, pauses a moment, and then has this like loud sonic boom, planes walking away with it. Yeah. Because technically he can carry it. And I think we see him swinging at Eternals with it later in the novel, if I remember correctly. That was a moment where I really appreciated the way Greg describes planes walking. So previous to this, he describes Karn as having this like light metallic ping. But when Karn is taking literally a god's spear that was forged with Nicol Bolas's own power through the blind eternities, it like 
creates this sonic boom as it comes with him. Like, it just <laughs> feels awesome and powerful and difficult, which I, I think heightens heightens that moment where, like, hey, this is actually something awesome. Because Nymph Mizzet gets that spear later and gets to stab Bolas, and that's pretty wild. Yeah, I'm kind of sad that wasn't a story moment. So that was Team Planar Bridge. Let's move on to uh, Team Interplanar Beacon, which is just Ral. But there's some pretty great moments in, in this whole sequence as well. He rides a skyship or something that's almost a skyship called Goldbet Frezzle's Cloudlifter, which is um, just such a fantastic name. Oh, I really want it to be on a card. Yeah. That would have been a great card. <laughs> uh, and he like he gets there and starts talking to the chief chemister. And the chemister's like, well, we designed it to not get shut off. Uh, and and Ral's like, well, you know, there's got to be something we can do to turn this thing off. Like, what? there's some back door. Tell me what it is. And he said, well, if we disconnect the power, we could do it. And Ral's like, sure, and just, like, shoves his hand through the metal framework and grabs a conduit and starts just, like, pulling the electricity out of it. And shoots it at Kefnet and shoots off Kefnet's arm. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah, I love it a lot. I also love the beacon, side note, I love the beacon because it is, like, the shout-out to the world-building team for bringing back the Mox beacon, like, 20 years later. The last time we saw something like this was in canceled comic books from the beginning of magic story of magic story like ever in the 90s so would have been 96 yeah something like that like 23 years it would have been an ashley ago <laughs> wow yeah that, that 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 the end of the armada comics line was supposed to be the planeswalker war but it got canceled before they got there and and now in War of the Spark, they brought the beacon back. What a bunch of dorks. <laughs> so Team Immortal Sun was Sahili, uh, Chandra, and who else was with them? Um, also Chandra. Yeah. <laughs> so there were two, yeah, so there were two Chandras in this scene because in order to trick Dovin Ban, Nissa suggested... It was that Nissa or Jaya suggested to her, don't be yourself. He knows you too well. <laughs> and it's like Lazav, who first of all is amazing in this novel because oh he keeps God. planes walking out. Not, I'm sorry. He keeps uh, shape-shifting from like one person to another. So you never know who he is. Is it Lavinia? Lavinia was with them as well. Lazav was my MVP for this novel. Like, I never really appreciated how cool the Demir could be, because me being the Celestia slash Naya mage that I am. But Lazav's use in this novel was excellent. It was... Every time he showed up, I laughed a little bit. It was great. Yeah, Lazav is great because he pretends to be Chandra, and he just has, like, a is-it flamethrower? <laughs> and that's how he's, like, simulating the, the fire magic. And Dovin just starts going into this, like, monologue about Chandra and how she'll never learn. And uh, Lazav just reveals himself, and Chandra appears out of nowhere and blasts him from a different side with fire, which was pretty great. Well, she's, she's down destroying, uh, dislodging the Immortal Sun, but... Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Dovin is like, ha ha ha, you can't defeat me. I know all your little tricks. And then Lazav turns back into himself and throws two throwing stars at Dovin's eyes and blinds him. <laughs> Psych! <laughs> yeah, Dovin was permanently scarred by this novel. Sahili also has a cool moment. She's not just there. She hijacks a bunch of Dovin's uh, thopters with flying bundar which are the uh, cat monkeys from Kaladesh. So she has like some mechanical flying monkeys, flying bundar that uh, fly out and uh, capture some of the thopters and like reprogram them to take them up to, to face uh, uh, Dovin, who is riding one of his own thopters at the top. Dovin planes walks away and they're able to turn off the immortal sun. And then Chandra has to turn it back on later. Yeah, that was pretty great. But uh, uh, essentially, it turns out that uh, Azor had a way to turn it off the whole time. It just didn't matter because he didn't have a way to get his Planeswalker spark back. And he was just kind of a dick, so he didn't really care if it trapped other people there. I guess he kind of kept it going just in case the trap ever worked, but uh, he definitely deserves to sit on Lonely Island. Although I wonder if he still has to be there now that Jace isn't the living guild pack anymore. That's a whole other question. We can't get off anyway, but... Alright, so then we have Team Liliana Assassination Mission. That team was Jace, Teferi, Vivian, and Jaya. And Teferi in this novel just kind of casts, like, Haystaga on everybody. Uh, he, he's, he slows down time for the people they want it to slow it down for and speeds up time for people that uh, uh, don't, essentially... I, I probably just mixed that up. But anyway, he makes time go the way the people want it to go. And uh, they go and they try and take out Liliana with fire and with arrows and they, they clip her. But then like the Anaki spirits start coming out of the veil and like defending Liliana here. And then Bolas actually notices and destroys the buildings that they are standing on. And Liliana is able to recompose herself and draw energy from her own spilled blood to heal herself which which i really liked because this is this is another moment where we're reminded that liliana is a healer and it's not just that she gets it from her own blood she actually absorbs some of the um eternals right or consumes some of their energy yeah some of the some of the necromantic energy from the eternals she she summons to heal herself which is something black can do we see like siphon soul and things so She's like pulling that energy back to to heal herself. And Teferi gets a pretty cool moment where he's like, they have this, God, what's the, what's the game I'm thinking of? They have this awesome moment where they, uh, he slows down time enough that they're able to like jump from piece of wreckage to piece of wreckage to get down safely from the buildings that were destroyed. Days of future past. Wait, no, not, not days of future past is apocalypse. Where the, where the buildings are all getting destroyed around them, yeah. Brian, that requires people to have seen X-Men Apocalypse. I've seen both of them. I've seen that movie. You know, the, like, that's, those scenes, the scenes with um, Quicksilver are the only reason to go see the, that movie. Uh, Quicksilver <laughs> is great in the movies that he appears in. That is correct. Not Well, not the MCU version, just the X-Men version. The MCU version was forgettable, which is why he was probably killed, but whatever. Spoiler alert for Avengers Age of Ultron. <laughs> no, several year no, old movie. At this I, I'm point. not even repentant about it. You missed your chance. 
let's move on to Operation Desperation, which has uh, Niv-Mizzet being restored, being reborn, being made the Living Guild Pact, and uh, taking that, finishing off Kefnet with his new power, and then just kind of getting drained and dropping, and you you kind of forget about him, which was a, a little bit intentional because uh, everyone was supposed to have thought Niv-Mizzet was out of the fight. You forgot about the best part where he tells Jace to suck it. This is the best, yeah. Once he's restored, he's like, you're not guild packed anymore. It's great mirroring to the end of uh, uh, to the end of the Secretist novels where he challenges Jace and now he's like just smugly rubbing it in Jace's face. <laughs> Which he's like, he has time for because that's Niv-Mizzet. Who cares about the other Elder Dragon? I have this very petty vendetta that I have to rub in this guy's face because Niv-Mizzet is that vain. <laughs> I'm very curious, though. Inevitably, we'll be back on Ravnica. It's the most popular world. But Niv-Mizzet as Living Guild Pact is strange. An awful idea. Terrible, I think. Like, he, he wants to rule Ravnica, but I don't think he really wants the responsibility that comes with it. And I... I don't know if he entirely is ready for what he just got himself into. You know what? I agree with you, but I also think that this is going to just lead add another layer to the dystopia that is Ravnica. And when he was originally trying to uh, get Ral to investigate the implicit maze, he didn't want it like to be, oh, I'm going to be the Living Guild Pact. He wanted the power that comes with it, you know. So definitely not the responsibility. All right. Well, there's another meeting in the summit room. And uh, there's this great moment where the Gatewatch has snuck off and they're arguing and Dak like jumped. Jack, Dak has been hanging out on top of Asperia. He had climbed up there and he jumps down and uh, gives him it gives his own two cents. And that was the point where I was like, oh, Dak is joining the Gatewatch. Right before the final assault where Dak gets his spark harvested, which is so tragic and was very emotionally emotionally scarring for me for a little while. <laughs> so the final assault, there's a lot going on in this and we can't possibly cover all of it because there are a lot of little things. This is where a lot of little moments of cool come from. But what what ends up happening is the, the attack starts to falter. Uh... Gideon gets his 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 Pegasus, which is an awesome Perseus moment. His Pegasus gets impaled by uh, one of Oketra's arrows. He falls, and then everyone's like, "Oh no, we're done for!" And then he rises back up on Rakdos and leaps in and dashes his his sword, and it breaks. And it's just the most tragic moment ever. And we have like five cards showing the sequence, so we don't need to talk about it too much. But that's really when Liliana realizes, oh, they're not going to do it. I've got to take charge of this. And ends up turning Oketra and Bantu on Nicol Bolas. Oketra gets obliterated. And just as Bantu bites onto him, uh, he discovers a spear has erupted from his chest. And this ordinarily wouldn't really be a problem for him. Niv-Mizzet is behind him and had kind of snuck back there while everyone thought he was out of the fight and stabbed him with his own spear, which had his power from when he was a godlike being imbued in it. 
the distraction is just long enough for the elder spell to take effect and suck his own spark away. And then what everyone sees on Ravnica is him, him basically dying uh, and, and getting harvested. Uh, what really happens, though, is that Ugin appears, has a conversation with Jace, and between the two of them, their magics hide Ugin whisking Bolas away to the meditation realm. So Jace now has this secret where he knows Bolas is still alive. The discussion for why to keep Bolas alive, I thought was a, a, a pretty decent one in that all the Elder Dragons have come back at least once, or at least the Planeswalker ones. And do you really want Bolas's spirit lingering around on Ravnica? Remember, one of the big problems of the original Ravnica block was because they killed the big bad, Zadek, and his ghost stuck around to cause tons of problems. I don't think Ugin is referring to Bolas's ghost here. I think he's referring to the same process where Ugin was killed and was reborn in the Meditation Realm as to that happening to Bolas. Well, I mean, it happened already, right? Ryu Sensei, or Sensei Ryu, or Ryu, or whatever he called himself? Yeah. That was Bolas lingering in a rift, though, not being reborn through the Meditation Realm. Which is, I think, what Ugin is most afraid of happening. But yeah, basically the point was like, look, killing him isn't going to stop him. <laughs> that, uh, we already tried that before. Like, you, you gotta... You gotta... Ask the Umazawa family how well that worked out. Tetsuko's a fugitive forever, so... Actually, no, someone should go tell her to, like, settle down now. <laughs> Start a family. Yeah. Go back to Madara. I'm curious about the metaphysics of Ugin being able to drag Nicol Bolas to the meditation realm, though. Thank you for reading my mind. I had the same thought. My assumption is that it involves Bolas's connection to the realm through the spirit gem. So he leaves the spirit gem behind. Liliana has it. And, and Liliana claims it. Yeah, yeah, which is which is interesting by itself. But there are a few things going on there, basically. Like, there's there the Elder Dragons, first of all, their progeny of the Ur-Dragon, which is a being that lives in the Blind Eternities. Bolas surviving the Blind Eternities is not is not a huge stretch um, in that context. I, I did appreciate he does get battered and broken from the trip. So, like... Yeah, he's not going to survive long term, right? Like, he didn't... It's not like he just poofed through the Blind Eternities and was fine. He... Ugin dragged him and that trip like broke his wing and like tore a bunch of his scales off and it took him months to recover yeah and i should note there's other examples of like from the old armada comics for instance where chromium is turned into an interplanar barge uh and so there's you know there's there's a lot of examples elder dragons power level wise were known as being close to planeswalkers even before they were planeswalkers. Uh, so, you know, and we've we've seen in magic history that strong enough entities can survive the blind eternities. We see the Sisters of Flesh and Spirit at the end of Future Sight exist in the blind eternities to warn Lashrak away from the plane. Um, or to warn Bolas away from the plane. I don't know. I don't remember which one appears before them, but they appear in the Blind Eternities, and they are not planeswalkers. So there's there's plenty of of precedent there for sufficiently powerful beings to be 
at least to survive the blind eternities for a short period of time. Given that, let's move on to the the wrap up from the novel since we're running low on time here. The assassination missions. So at the end of the novel, the three bolus pawns who have not been brought to justice including Liliana, because Liliana's turn was too late for the people of Ravnica, even though her turning is the only reason anyone survived. But, well, we won't get into that right now. That's a discussion for down the line. Yeah, she also killed hundreds of people, so... Yeah, this is also, like, partially her fault. If they had stayed indoors, they would have been fine. To be fair, it was under duress. You know, it wasn't like... We can put her on trial in another episode. Jay, just following orders is not a viable legal defense when it comes to war crimes. We can we can talk more about this later, because I don't disagree, but it's different than her doing it necessarily of her own volition. Uh, being forced to do something at gunpoint is way different than not. Uh, I wasn't defending Liliana, I was just saying there's a reason that they're sending Kaya after her. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I can absolutely see why they would do it, yeah. So they dispatch Kaya after Liliana, who has escaped with the um, the spirit gem. And still has the chain veil. Still has the chain veil, that's right. Uh, they dispatched Vraska after Dovin Bon, who is blinded and uh, probably wounded somewhere trying to recover. <laughs> uh, and Ral Zarek after Tezzeret. Tezzeret, you remember, escaped uh, from the rest of the Gatewatch and basically, in an ominous sort of way, thanked them for disrupting the dragon's plans and said, with him gone, (laughs) there's no one who can stop me. So it'll be interesting to see how that gets followed up on. I've seen some people note that uh, Dovin Bond doesn't have eyes anymore, or his eyes were destroyed, so how can Vraska petrify him? But remember, Vraska carries a sword. Number one. She's still a pirate. And number two, she does petrify the Eternals who don't have eyes either. It's, I don't think it's a literal eye-to-eye transaction. It's not Greek mythology, Gorgon. She she has a very different set of magical abilities that what allows her to petrify things, so. You know, if you have eyes and you cover your eyes, you can definitely resist her petrifying gaze, but she still has the power to to petrify things. Uh, without ha- having to necessarily make direct, literal, physical eye contact. Some of these set pieces were amazing. Like, they were a, they were a lot of fun. Raoul and the Interplanar Beacon was probably one of my favorite. Amonkhet and the Planar Bridge was another one of mine. So, uh, I'm curious from the rest of you, as a final thought, what your favorite of these set pieces were, and if you had any last thoughts about maybe the dangling plot threads or anything along those lines. So Lorelai? Uh, my only final thought is that on May 20th is the start of Modern Horizons preview season, the first set I got to write names and flavor text for, so I very much get hype. I'm done with War of the Spark. Let's go. Modern Horizons, let's go. <laughs> Brian? Um, my final thought is that I am looking forward to seeing um, how... Liliana rectifies or evades Kaya and or kills Kaya and or persuades Kaya to let her live. Um, I feel like the ending of this novel 
leads a lot to be desired as far as explanations on Liana's. I don't know. It's she has a very complicated. She's going to have a very complicated conversation because I don't think I have a feeling that they're not just going to have Kaya sneak up on her and kill her. So I'm very interested to see how that's going to go and how long it takes Kaya to find her and if what kind of stuff she's going to be up to. Because I almost feel like this is a, an inspiration for her to go like black white or something because of interest, self introspecting at or just thinking about Gideon's sacrifice and the mental damage that Jay's observed in her and what that's going to cause her to do as far as reevaluating her priorities, especially now that she's free. So I'm looking forward to seeing her growth or if there's any growth after this. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. We do have a whole novel that is about the repercussions of War of the Spark. Ashley, final thoughts? So a few things that I wish had been addressed about Gideon that weren't, and I did not expect them to. Number one, um, Gideon and Chandra have been in a very similar situation before. In the novel The Purifying Fire, they were trapped on the plane of Duridin and unable to planeswalk away. And this guy attempted to steal Gideon's spark. And I was kind of hoping that would come up, but maybe they've just blocked it from their memories. Also, by the way, they just killed that guy by stabbing him. Um, the other thing... I don't remember what the other thing was. Oh yeah, the other thing I wanted to say was that I'm not trying to get anyone's hopes up here. And nor am I saying this is what I think is going to happen. But I want to I put it out there. Just in case it does happen, I can say that I said this. So we already have a precedent of a planeswalker leaving the Theros Underworld. We have Elspeth still there. They never said, they've never established that um, when someone from Theros dies, they will go back to the Theros Underworld. But they never established that that doesn't happen. So if they wanted to say that happens, like we couldn't argue with it. There's also still the open plot thread that in the same novel I just mentioned, Gideon is in a cult called the Order of Heliod. And it has never been addressed as to why he has the same name as the god that Gideon served Heliod. That's still got to get answered. And I'm not going to be able to sleep until I get that answer. So if all y'all are with me and want to get on the Modern Horizons hype train, because that's where I am, that's where the cool kids are, you can also head over to patreon.com slash thevorthoscast, which is also where the cool kids go to support your favorite magic story podcast, us. We cannot keep the show running without your support. We super appreciate everything y'all have done to keep us producing episodes week after week. Everyone who supports the show on Patreon gets access to our Discord community where Vorthoses from around the world are coming together to talk about, you know, old, tired things like War of the Spark and new, exciting things like Hype for Modern Horizons and, you know, some fun things like our cute pets and just having a fun little community to hang out with each other. You know, maybe getting hyped for Godzilla King of the Monsters at the end of the month because it's going to be awesome. Anyway, so if you love our show and you want to be a part of that, you can head over to Patreon and support us starting today. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.